we welcome you back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take an honest look at the current administration, and we expose existential threats to America and discuss them. One of those threats lies on the American border with Mexico. Joining me today is the man who knows more about that than anyone, Mark Krikorian. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. We'll get an update from Mark on what's going on at the southern border and the latest on efforts to stop illegal immigration. What about this Ninth Circuit court ruling? Is there anything that can be done without the help of the Democrats? Then we'll hear from Seth Liebson, our old buddy Claude former producer of Morning in America radio show. Right. And now host of his own show, The Seth Liebson Show, out of Phoenix. Seth will talk to us about a number of things. He was just down at the border, so we'll get his perspective. And he also wants to talk about uh, Ilan Omar, Congresswoman from Mm -hmm. Minnesota, and um, some of the hate crime issues that are around. Also, Seth is quite expert on the drug and opioid issue. We'll get his perspective on that. But first few things on my mind... Um, Claude. Yes. I don't know whether we're hurtling toward impeachment, but I think we are. Okay. I just don't see how these guys can't do it. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, first of all, you know, the, the base wants it. They're doing this kind of faux impeachment hearings, contempt for Bill Barr and all that. Ridiculous, by the way. Um, you know, interesting <laughs> that they're holding him in contempt because he wouldn't give them the whole report. Meanwhile, 99. Eight percent of the report is sitting there in a vault, and uh, Jerry Nadler and other committee chairs can go read it. None of them have. Mm-hmm. None of them mm-hmm. has. I should say. Get my grammar right. But I, you know, I think sooner or later they're just going to have to face the music and say they're going for impeachment. Um, if they really believe there are ten cases of obstruction of justice, you know, and people are going to say, "Well, you just, you just got to do it. You just got to do it." I mean, that's what their base is going to push. And, um, and. And, and the hatred for Donald Trump is so real. It's the war against Donald Trump. It's a war against Donald Trump. They've declared war on Donald Trump. And I th- don't think they want anything but unconditional surrender or defeat. And uh, this is just the way they're going to go. I, I, I don't have any doubt about it. Do you have any doubt? Well, and in a worst-case scenario for Democrats and liberals, this will at least drag out until 2020 election. And then, you know, there's nothing by way of legislation uh, passed or pushed, uh, and so at least they've stalled time <laughs> until the election, assuming or hoping that uh, somehow they can pull out a victory, but that's a long shot. It is a long shot. And but this is the game plan. I mean, it's either yeah. to impeach him or at least to stall long enough to try to, you know. And the harm here is, um, of course, if there's no legislation, there's maybe no relief on the border. Mm-hmm which we'll talk about with uh, with Mark Curry and, and with Seth, uh, because I'm not sure you can do this without help from the Democrats. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, let's welcome Mark Curry into the show. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Okay. Let's start with the Ninth Circuit. Um, what did they do Um uh, for the sake of the audience, if they hadn't heard about it at all, what did the Ninth Circuit do? And I take it this was something of a surprise. Yeah, the administration started a program that's uh, colloquially known as Remain in Mexico, so that certain people, when they apply for asylum, um, having come from Mexico, if they're not themselves Mexican, mostly Central American, would be required to go back into Mexico to wait while their asylum case proceeds. The point is, they wouldn't be able to use asylum as a means of getting past the border patrol and then go and disappear and work illegally or what have you. It's an important part 
of a strategy to try to disincentivize people from using asylum as a strategy for illegal immigration. Well, as you can imagine, the usual suspects filed a lawsuit against this program because, you know, I mean, the ACLU and the rest of them are, li- are literally opposed to the existence of the U.S. border. I mean, that's not an exaggeration anymore. So they conveniently found a district court, a, fed- a low federal judge in California, to uh, enjoin the program, to uh, freeze it and say the administration could not proceed. It- they then appealed, and that's what the – and the decision uh, of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, surprisingly, uh, said that that injunction uh, was, uh, you know, not legitimate and the administration could proceed with this remain in Mexico program, so-called, and expand it, which is what they're planning on doing. It's only being, it's only working now in the San Diego area. Mexican government has agreed. So what you're going to see is an increasing number of people who come and apply for asylum are going to have to go back and wait for Mexico, wait in Mexico. And the reason that's important is that if you genuinely have an asylum claim, you're fleeing actual political persecution in, say, El Salvador, you're not going to mind waiting somewhere where you're not being persecuted for the case to proceed. Sure. If you're just using it as a strategy for illegal immigration, it becomes a lot less attractive if you're going to have to sit in Tijuana or Juarez while your case proceeds. Will this will this hold? Yeah, the decision was from a uh, three-judge panel. Okay. And the question now is, you know, will it go to the full Ninth Circuit or will it go straight to Supreme Court? I don't know the I don't know the mechanics of how that works. So, it- you know, the, the administration could still lose, but probably not. And what was surprising is that it was the Ninth Circuit that ruled in favor of the administration, and the Ninth Circuit has been the source of most of this judicial resistance, uh, often not based in law to the administration's initiatives on immigration. Uh, yeah, I'm, and I know less than you, but except the, the reputation of the Ninth Circuit. But are you saying unlikely because when it goes to the full Ninth Circuit, they'll probably side with the three-judge decision? I, I think so. I mean, that, that's a guesswork, obviously. But ultimately, when it gets to the Supreme Court, I don't think there's any chance the administration's going to lose. Until either of those happens, this program can be in effect. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's running now, and the what the administration wanted to do is now expand it beyond just San Diego, expand it to El Paso and to South Texas, and yeah, they now have the green light to do that. So we'll see how that you know we'll see how that works out. And that would mean all asylum seekers would wait there. Is that correct? Potentially. I mean, I think they're doing it now only for those who come to ports of entry. In other okay. words, who present themselves to an immigration officer at an entry point. Um, the question is, will they be expanding it to those who are caught by the Border Patrol? And um, they have not done that yet. That's obviously the bigger part of the issue. That's why I said this is one part of their strategy to limit this. It's not, you know, in itself the magic bullet. And, you know, yeah. obviously you need the Mexican government's cooperation on this because these people aren't Mexican and we're sending them back into Mexico. There is a sort of hot potato you know, element of this is that once I mean, the Mexican government has always said, look, once these people 
transit our country and they get into yours, well, then they're your problem and we're not taking them back. What we're seeing, though, with the current administration in Mexico, despite its kind of populist and left-wing you know, approach, they don't want to be stuck with lots of Central Americans in their country any more than Turkey was wild about having all of those Middle Easterners going yeah. through its country. Yeah. So in a, in a similar way that the Europeans got Turkey to agree to crack down, and part of it was, you know, they paid them big bribes, um, we are getting cooperation from Mexico because they don't want to be, you know, basically a kind of welcome mat for people from all over the world. And it's not just Central America anymore. Lots of Cubans and Haitians, lots of people from Congo and from Iran and elsewhere are transiting Mexico, and they're not liking it. And the border mayors, the mayors of the northern border towns, the ones that really kind of get the uh, short end of the stick on this, they are just outraged. Uh, In fact, the mayor of Tijuana, at one point, this is a few months ago when it really started boiling over, he went to a protest of local Tijuana people against these caravans he was wearing a red baseball cap that literally said make tijuana great again yeah (laughs) um so we have a common interest with mexico now in trying to clamp down on this in the short run i would might guess that that mayor and some others might not want to see all these people coming back from the u.s into mexico but in the long run if word gets out then that will slow I mean that will that will impede the 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 the, the acceleration and even even slow it down and you won't see the caravans. That's the issue because they've been thinking in short term in short run terms all along. Okay. That's why they haven't there hasn't been a lot of objection up to now. Okay. But they're now, it's now getting bad enough that they see they really need to respond in such a way as to clamp down on this flow and slow it down from the beginning what what made them do this what you just described did we bribe them uh, political pressure i think mexico cooperated for a bunch you know for a, a little bit of all of those things okay i assume there's various amounts of aid and payoffs and stuff some of it open some of it hidden uh, you know i don't mind that that's the way politics okay. works also we're pressuring them and honestly they're you know President Trump, um, they're really kind of worried that he's crazy enough to shut down their ports of entry, for instance, which is what he threatened to do. And they need to trade with us a lot more than we need it with them. It's possible also they saw the value, the point of the long run, which is even as people are passing through to go into the U.S., it's at at very best an inconvenience for them and often a lot worse to have all these people coming through right and in fact a lot of them end up staying they a lot of them do end up staying Staying, sure and you know and they don't want mexico they don't want central american illegal aliens any more than we do well if this thing holds and i'm delighted to hear you say you think it will this can crack the hardest part of the problem right now can it potentially i mean let's see how it works out you know the question is um will people just skip the ports of entry altogether and you know just move to sneaking across the border illegally and then claiming asylum and the question is would mexico then agree to um our returning people who were caught illegally see that's so it's that's why i'm saying this is an important part of the problem it's not something that's going to fix the whole thing right away because at the ports of entry they are not their feet are not in the united states exactly and now you know used to be 
and it still is, that the actual immigration inspector is well within the United States. I mean, you could be 50 feet, 100 feet into the U.S. before you get to the actual desk where the immigration inspector is. And once they're there, they're already in the U.S. and the game is over. That's why now what immigration does is in a lot of these ports, and I've, I've seen this too, they have, we now have guys literally with their toes at the border itself uh, screening people so that if they are asylum, see, they don't have a visa or anything. They say, I want to apply for asylum. They say, okay, we got to take a number. And so they never end up getting into the U.S. Uh, at all. All right. But it, then at the moment, another incentive to go around the ports of entry and to sneak yeah, in. Unfortunately. But, but again, you know, you've got to, you got to deal with all, you know, one each piece of the problem separately. You don't know if the court reached to, to, to those people. Uh, I haven't read the whole decision, but the my immigration judge employee who read it, um, uh, he wrote an analysis of it, a long analysis of it. And it, as far as I know, the administration, our administration, is not now doing this with people who were caught um, as illegal aliens. Okay, as having entered another place. Okay. But this could be a big deal. All right. Well, that's that's good news. Apart from that, can the current issue, the current problem, the current crisis be resolved without cooperation between Congress and the president? I don't see how. I mean, I hope that I would be, you know, that I, I, I would be delighted to be proven wrong. But I think no matter what we do, the incentives just remain too great in statute to actually slow this flow, especially since it's gained momentum now for several years, really since 2014 or even a little before that, when it should have been clamped down much earlier. Um, the Even under Obama in 2014, when this really blew up in their face, they realized how politically dangerous it was, even though the Obama people obviously are more than happy to have uh, you know illegal aliens to come in. They realized this was a problem. And so they did take some steps, again, administratively to the extent they could. Uh, they had some limited effect. They, again, you know, paid big bags of bribes to Mexico for them to, to uh, do a better job of cracking down. And the numbers went down a little bit in 2015, but then they went right back up, precisely because the statutory changes that are necessary, um, you know, didn't... Uh, didn't happen. The administration didn't push for them. Uh, Congress wasn't willing to do, especially the Democrats were not willing to make those changes. So I don't, I don't see how um, this can be fixed without Congress. But like I said, the administration is trying everything it can. And I, I hope to be surprised, but I don't expect that will be. And that is hope to be surprised by congressional action. But you, I hope to be surprised that the administrative steps the administration oh, is I taking see. will okay. do the job. Such as what we've just discussed. I'm not, honestly, I'm not holding my breath. But what we've just discussed is the last best hope we've seen, right? I think so, yeah. That's very interesting. Now, motivation of the Democrats, straightforward politics, don't want to give Trump a victory, or is it back to something you said in passing, they don't really believe in the borders anyway. Yeah, I think it's both. You know, some of it is just politics. Uh, Trump is bad. If Trump said it was raining, they wouldn't believe him. If Trump said shower daily, they'd stop bathing. I mean, mm -hmm. if that is anything he says, they're against. Anything that could give him a victory, they're going to fight. So part of it is clearly that. 
But there is a broader, um, you know, ideological or principled sort of framework to this that even if they haven't really thought it through, Democrats, um, you know, even though they'll say they're against open borders, they do actually oppose any of the steps that are necessary to control the borders. Yeah. So as objectively as the Marxists would say, they are for open borders, regardless of what their rhetoric is. Yeah. If we go into the political side of this, it's a pretty clear divide between Democrats and Republicans. I was talking to some people the other day saying, how does this end up as a as a winning issue for either side? The answer I got from a couple of people was, well, if the if it's framed as a compassion issue, it goes for the Dems. If it's framed as a security issue, it goes for the Republicans. I said, that's not good enough. Tell me which way it's going to be framed and who's going to win this issue. Would you take a stab at that? Well, even if it's framed as a compassion issue, there's still only so much compassion people are going to put up with. See, that's the thing, is that I almost... I mean, I'm not saying I like what's happening, but I think it's almost useful for the border situation to get increasingly, spin increasingly out of control, as long as the administration is seen as doing everything it can within the law to stop it, because it does force people to face the real choice here, is that, you know, compassion is fine, but how much compassion? You know, is one million people yeah. beyond the legitimate immigration limits that Congress has passed? Is one million extra people too much? Five million? Ten million? How many? Tell me. I mean, yeah. that's a useful debate to have. So I think the Democrats are starting to actually worry about this because if this keeps spinning out of control, you know, there's an election in less than a year and a half. And there, this yeah. is going to figure into the campaigns how could it not and there is some recognition some of it grudging but i mean jay johnson kind of started off by saying man i never faced anything like this there really is a crisis at the border and then you get a tom friedman editorial and you get you know half good half bad but, but some some dawning of recognition and admission in public by a number of Democrats or left-leaning people that there is a cri real crisis at the border in the terms Donald Trump is describing. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, Jay Johnson, I mean, he was an Obama guy. I disagreed with him on a lot of things, but, you know, he was a serious guy. And um, I think it was important that he publicly has come out and said, uh, no, that his successors at DHS are right. This is a crisis. And um, I think that is maybe start to alert Democrats who, you know, who execrate Trump that they can't just keep doing that and not not have some actual answer to what to do with the border. Um, you know, I'm Good. here's hoping. Yeah. But I think I got to say, I just think the depth of loathing for Trump and the kind of the I mean, almost the derangement that much of the Democratic Party is now experiencing is too profound for enough of them to overcome it to actually agree to changes. Because they know that Trump, you know, if there were a bill, just say a targeted bill that just dealt with some of these loopholes and nothing else, Trump would sign it and this is an important step and we're now, you know, addressing this border disaster. It would, it would gall the Democrats to give Trump that kind of victory and I just think that they're not, there's just not enough of them that are willing to 
do that. So they're going to, I mean, in a sense, I'm kind of hoping this continues because the Democrats are going to pay a steep price for it in November, next November, if it does continue. If it does continue. And if they did strike a deal, that would be the president's advantage, right, as well? Sure it would. So he wins either way, you think? I think he wins. Honestly, I think he wins either way. I mean, I don't think this is part of any four-dimensional chess the White House is playing right, or any right, of that right. sort of yeah, thing. Sure, but sure, when sure. you look at the way practically it would work out, I think the president does kind of win either way. Okay. Now, as um, long as he's seen as doing everything that he can in his own power, which I think he is. Now, indulge me for a minute. Um, not irrelevant. It's part of this, a piece of this. And you may want to scold me on this because you mentioned earlier about, you know, people from around the world. You mentioned Congo, elsewhere. I was watching uh, Fox and over and over again in the, in the, the news, they interviewed this guy one guy from India, but they interviewed this one guy from Africa who took a boat over to Colombia and then Colombia went up and then he threw it the jungles of Panama and he just, he was coming to America. Uh, they interviewed him in Mexico and I know our fear is 150 million, 250 million, 500 million people. But as I listened to this guy, I said, this is the guy I want. This guy really wants to come to America. Seemed to have very good motivation. I'm not saying let him in, but it, it proves your point. People are, are, are ready to come from all corners of the globe to get in. I don't know if you saw that interview. Uh, no, I didn't see that particular one, but I, I mean, obviously, yeah, we can we see that kind of thing all the time. And, you know, Gallup did a uh, survey. They've done this a number of times. Uh, I think this was in December. They released this version of it. And they, you know, their conclusion was something like 150 to 160 million people would move here if they could. And that actually doesn't count family members. We actually published a blog post this week on our site at cis.org, kind of estimating, guesstimating really what that would be with family members. We're talking 300 to 700 million people who would, you know, as a practical matter, actually want to come here rather than just kind of think about it and say, hey, that's, you know, watch movies and say, hey, wouldn't be America be great, but actually would want to come here. Well, you know, let's say half of them would be uh, wonderful people or whatever. I mean, is is really, I mean, there has to be some cap. That's the whole point. That's why I've always insisted that the debate on immigration is less over illegal immigration. That's practically speaking the first thing we talk about. But even if we win that debate and everybody acknowledges, yes, the rules have to be enforced, the question is, what are the rules? How many people and how do we pick them? And that is the most important part of the debate, unfortunately, is the one that we don't have often enough. That's sort of almost the last thing people talk about instead of the first thing. Well, I, 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 if there's 100 million guys like this guy you saw who want to move here, they still can't come here. It doesn't matter how wonderful they are. We I can't know. take 100 million people. I know. I know. Right. But, you know, the point is screening and kind of thing that I hear Tom Cotton talking about all the time, right? What right. people we need. But um, I, I hear from you, and you're, 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 the, you're our go-to guy. A lot of Americans, uh, you know, listen to you on this. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're more optimistic right now than you've been. Uh, in a while because of this, mainly because of this court decision? Yeah, I'm, I don't, I mean, I'm always kind of pessimistically optimistic. Yes, I know. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, I'm a little bit optimistic, but 
I'm optimistic because I think things are going to get so bad that even the Democrats are going to have to respond. So is, is that optimism? I don't know. But, yeah. But it is a kind of optimism, yes. Yeah, I know if somebody asked me, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I said, well, d- deep down, I'm, theoretically, I'm a pessimist. I'm with Isaiah. It's all wind and ashes in the end, you know. But operationally, I'm an optimist. What can we do today to make it better, you know? I'm actually probably more optimistic than that because even though I think really – our country is screwed. We're screwed so much less than everyone else in the world that, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm going to get you while you're optimistic and end it right there. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Krikorian. Happy to do it. Thank you. You're our guy. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Well, Claude, I am lifted up. Uh, I mean, it's been long stretch of bad news about immigration and where we're going in immigration. Right. Uh, we just talked to Mark Krikorian, who is the guy. And... Um, you know, he's, he's more optimistic, and he knows everything. This court decision, very big surprise from the Ninth Circuit, even three judges. But if that's upheld by the full Ninth, it's not going to be struck down by the Supremes. Mm-hmm. If it's not upheld by the by the full Ninth, uh, the Supremes may, you know, may, may go back to it anyway. Right. But, um, you know, something good is happening in Mexico as well. And that's a that's a good thing that, that you know the the story Mark told about the mayor you know make mm-hmm. Tijuana great right. again right love to see that hat love to see a picture of that hat <laughs> but um, you know they're getting the message or the request or they're tired of all these people coming through and passing through because uh, we know it's not just uh, you know they're not just going through on the Asila you know they're, right. they're yeah. stopping and uh, taking advantage of local circumstances and leaving a lot of trash and stuff behind and it's a burden uh, on them and they are seeing seeing long run I suppose in the short run they were thinking okay people pass through we'll get them into the United States and they're gone but they keep coming in these right. huge numbers right so um, good. If Mark Krikorian is optimistic, then so am I. All right. Well, let's um, let's talk to Seth. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is Seth Leibson. He is the host of the Seth Leibson Show and former producer of Morning in America, the classic, iconic radio show of yours. Right. Past. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thank you. I owe it all to you. Hey, question for you, buddy, boss, if I may. Uh, it's commencement season, and I see all these speakers at all these college campuses, and you as the former Secretary of Education and best-selling author and chairman of National Endowment for the Humanities. I wonder how many um, colleges and universities you're speaking at this year. Let me count them. Let me count them. None. <laughs> None. This is the entire story with higher education, isn't it? Right there in that in that in that answer. Is the most popular speaker on campus again? Do you know who it was like the last two years? I don't know who it was the last two years. I'm gonna guess it, no, I couldn't guess. I couldn't tell you. Fareed Zakaria. Yeah, he's got a bunch again. He's got a bunch again. Yeah, he sure does. I notice, interestingly, there are certain Obama officials, his former uh, uh, Secretary of uh, Homeland Security, has uh, uh, been canceled from certain um, schools that he was invited to because he's too conservative and too right wing. Oh, he just so agreed with uh, he just agreed there was a crisis at the border. Yeah, yeah. 
That's how far the campus has moved. Even Obama officials are being disinvited by the uh, progressive left. It's kind of a template for where the Democratic Party is, too, don't wow. you? Wow. Wow. All right. We have a lot to talk about. Let's jump in. I want to start with telling you about Mark Krikorian. We just spoke with Mark, and I, I think you, you hold Mark in the same esteem I do. Very high. Mark is, are you ready for this? Sitting down? Optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. About what? Yeah. Global warming. <laughs> Global warming. No, about Trump's re-election, Israel security. What is he optimistic? All right. Are you lying down about the border? Good. Uh, he he makes a lot out of this uh, three court three judge court uh, out of the Ninth Circuit. Surprise, surprise! That yeah. backed the president up. He also said the Mexicans. Are, you know, we're, were, you know, very concerned about uh, these uh, these caravans, but thought, well, they just uh, empty them out in the U.S. and then we're and then we're done with them. But the passing through is no convenience to them either, to say the least. And they're seeing their long run interest. Otherwise, you're looking at two or three hundred million people, possibly, uh, is to stop this stuff. So the fact that uh, at least at the ports of entry, Mark said, you can stop people uh, and keep them in Mexico, um, at least people going through ports of entry, um, is, is, is a big deal and could potentially be a very big deal. He thinks it'll be upheld by the full ninth or in any case by the Supreme Court. Well, that is good news. You know, I was down, I did a uh, congressionally sponsored border tour about a month ago, and with some congressmen, you know, Andy Biggs here in Arizona sponsored it. Your friend Sean Duffy was with us from Wisconsin. And I have taken in most public policy, as I think you have, that you don't necessarily need to always observe something to understand it and know it. This was different. Um, I had no clue how... Well, you know, people will talk about a porous border. It's not porous. It is open. It is open. As I was doing a live interview from the border, I saw four people cross, walk right over, three adults and a child. I mean, to say it's porous is just wrong. And uh, I'll tell you, I thought I understood it till I went there. It's pretty bad, Bill. Yeah. Uh, any reason? I mean, you you follow these things, this court decision, other things. Um, any? Do you have? Do you agree with Mark? Um, you know, I, I've stopped predicting what the courts will do. Probably somewhere after about a year after I left law school, as you have. But if Mark is optimistic and he's typically cynical, then I'm going to side with Mark. I've learned not to disagree with Mark. He also said, and I'm curious about this. Uh, he also said the president wins either way. If the Democrats come around and there's some signs, some of them are at least recognizing there is a crisis, and not just a humanitarian crisis. But um, well, I think he's absolutely right on that. And that if they don't come, and if they don't, if they come around, if they sign something with Trump, great for the president. If they don't, he thinks the president wins this in 2020. I totally agree with him on that. I okay. think as we go into 2020, you look at what the Democrats are focused on since they've taken over the House, and it's revisiting 2016. Uh, it's getting rid of the Electoral College. It's uh, slavery reparations. Uh, it's making sure that people who... Um, whose citizen status uh, can't be asked on the census. It's giving convicted felons, terrorists, synagogue and church shooters the right to vote while they're in prison. That's what the Democrats are doing. Trump can say, here's what I'm doing. And so I think it's a win either way. I agree. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. Let's move on, because uh, I know on your show, Seth Liebson show, um, you've been talking a lot about Elon Omar, uh, hate yeah. crimes, other things. Tell us your thoughts on this. Well, yeah. First, I would suppose I would start with a book you and I wrote a few years back called The Fight of Our Law, and still available on Amazon. I would uh, recommend it to anyone to explain the times we're in with what um, what radical Islam has created in the uh, muzzle and sword of uh, the Islamophobia notion that we have to not speak out against um, radical statements, anti-Semitic statements, uh, grotesquely insensitive statements, bigoted statements, merely because they come from the mouth of a racial or ethnic or religious minority, whether it's Rashida Tlaib or Ilan Omar. And a lot of this came to the fore just the other night when Meghan McCain was on the Seth Meyers show, the late show with Seth Meyers, and he was giving her all kinds of hell for criticizing Ilan Omar and saying that she was being anti-Islamic or Islamophobic or creating an atmosphere of violence against Ilan Omar for her statements about 9-11, for her statements condemning America when it went into um, Mogadishu. And, you know, Seth Meyers said, you're being insensitive to her. And, And Megan was just flabbergasted. She was just flabbergasted that she does not have the right to criticize the words, the statements of an elected member of Congress, merely because she gets to be shielded by her religious cover and claim Islamophobia. Um, this is going on and on, and it's it's becoming quite dangerous. I don't know if you saw the story out of Philadelphia, out of this Philadelphia school, where you, where you had six-year-olds, six-year-olds reading poems about chopping off the heads of Jews. Now, you would have expected that maybe in Gaza or the West Bank. It's in Philadelphia. I interviewed a Philadelphia Inquirer reporter about it on my show, and he said the Human Rights Commission here in Philadelphia won't touch it. No one wants to touch it because they're being afraid. They, they are afraid of being called bigots. You cannot you cannot criticize radical Islam in this country anymore without uh, being called this, bigoted. Well, this, you will, and I will, and Scott Johnson and the Powerline boys will, and this guy will. But it is becoming a veil through which we really have to punch a lot harder. I was struck. I was talking about it on TV, actually. I know you don't watch TV. You're a radio guy. But... Um, you got to do what you got to do. I, I, and and I, this school is part of a network of schools. There are about 50 of them around the country. And there was a statement made by a sponsoring organization. I don't recall. Was it the Muslim American Society? Muslim American Society, right. Right. And it was so weak. It was said, you know, this was a mistake and, um, you know, and, and, you know, it wasn't approved. But it wasn't outrage. That wasn't outrage. And then we went through the usual thing. I heard someone say, well, you know, this is really terrible because um, because uh, you know uh, all the all the peace loving you know good Muslims out there are you know are, will be lumped in with this and you know important the interview went on that I was watching important that, that you know we hear from peaceful um, uh, peace loving Muslims and the guy said like who and guess whose name came up well I'm guessing it's the name that often comes up my friend my guest host when I'm away and my doctor Zudi Jasser Zudi Jasser and this yeah. is the Zudi Jasser phenomenon that we talked about 1.2 billion Muslims and when you want somebody who you know to talk about this stuff in a sensible rational way and who reassures you about his loyalty to America there's one guy maybe there are three or four well, I don't know but well, you tell I me think he has a bigger group he is the spokesman and he has built okay. been building a nice group Bill but you know what 
a lot of people are afraid to talk. When you are threatened with this kind of isolation from your community or this kind of punishment, verbal or physical, I understand why they have been cowed into fear from speaking out. But this is just such nonsense. I heard um, someone I've I've liked personally, I think you do, I don't want to speak for you, Juan Williams at Fox News. He was on The Five the other day talking about this Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib phenomenon. And he said, well, they need to be given a lot of birth because they're Muslims, so of course they're going to think differently. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Religion and ethnicity now determines the way you think? Well, I don't think they think anything like our old friend who passed away, Fuad Ajami or Zudi Jess. They do not think alike. Do I think like Gerald Nadler? Are you kidding me? Right. This is where we're at. We're back to 1933. By the way, wasn't Juan, uh, was, didn't he leave CNN or wherever he was because he said something about, you know, people are right to be worried about getting on a plane with, with Muslims, something yes. like that? Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. That's Juan. But you know what that Muslim school in that's Philadelphia Juan. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I remember shortly after 9-11, Rashida Tlaib put out an interview recently, Congresswoman uh, from Michigan, uh, put out an interview yesterday saying around uh, on 9-11, I think I was in my second year of law school. Most of us remember exactly where we were on 9-11, you by bet the way, we do. Yeah. especially yeah. if it meant something to us. She said, I think it was in my second year of law school, and I warned my brothers and sisters to be afraid of fellow Americans. Yeah. What? Are you kidding me? Um, This is the kind of um, blame America first anti-Americanism that is going out throughout the communities through the spokesman of radical Islam, which now has two very strong voices in Congress. And we're not we're not going to stop talking about it. We're just not. I remember right after 9-11, I remember hearing uh, someone talking and they made this point. They didn't intend to make it, but they said, well, we were most concerned about our friend who's a Muslim who runs a Muslim restaurant out in Virginia. And so we went out to reassure him, but we couldn't get anywhere near him because the line was around the block. I I tell that story and we have statistics on this, too. You know, you can look at the FBI documentation of hate crimes. You and I go through it in our book, The Fight of Our Lives. I go through it on my show. You know, this notion of a great swath of bigotry against Muslims in America is a myth. It is an absolute myth. You look at the hate crime statistics, they're three to five times less than anti-Jewish yeah. hate crimes. Yeah, give America. me those numbers again. And no you've, one would you've... say this is an anti-Semitic country. No one would say that. Give me those numbers again. Give the audience those numbers again. You you keep making them, and I keep forgetting them, but you, you, you're around to remind me of those. The 8% of all hate crimes, something like that, are uh, against Jews. Yes, that's right. And then you get something usually in the neighborhood of 10% are anti-Muslim. Now, hmm. let's take the year 2001. Over 55% of anti-religious bias in America was anti-Jewish. 27% of anti-religious bias was anti-Muslim. The following year, you had a similar difference. And the pattern just goes unreversed. Anti-Jewish bias in America, all terrible, as is anti-Muslim bias. It's far worse, three to five times in any given year. And yet these people tell you to be afraid of your fellow Americans. I'll tell you who to be afraid of, the people they never talk about, which is radical Muslims. You mean those, some of those guys who did something? Some of those guys that did something, yeah. Um, yeah. You know what that Muslim story, that Muslim school story in Philadelphia reminded me of, Bill? What? Remember right after 9-11, I think it was in October, you and I were just slack-jawed over that story in the Washington Post of that school, that school in, in somewhere around Chevy Chase, 
or Potomac, Maryland. Potomac, please. Yeah. And the students, fair enough. And the students, the Muslim students were polled there and they were saying, yeah. well, they didn't like what happened on 9-11, but they understood it. Yes, I do remember that. And we called the reporter and you remember what he said? He said he got shut down left and right because the FBI was actively investigating a cell there. And we never heard another thing about it. Yeah. This is um, this is this is back, and it's and it's alive. It is. Well, the one the one good thing that came out of that Philadelphia thing, it was uh, broadcast over and over again, at least on Fox, was that people were reminded. The uh, first thing I said when I was asked about it is, you know, uh, we we tend to forget. You know, one 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 great thing about America is people forget and move on. One bad thing about America, I've always said, is we forget and move on. That that thing in Philadelphia reminded us of you know where we were after nine eleven, and uh, a good reminder: we still have people Can who. I say are... one last thing about it because while yeah. I agree with you, and Steve Peterson and others tell you our problem here is the success of FBI and thwarting terrorist attacks, but you know in October there was this uh, now terribly tragically well known synagogue shooting in uh, Pittsburgh, and the world. And throughout the country, on high, denunciations of the white supremacists who did that. Everyone running for office, everyone in elected office rightfully denounced it. Silence about this. Silence about this, because it's the wrong kind of perpetrator, I suppose. Yeah. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. Uh, you have uh, you do great things on the conventional wisdom, and I just want to take up one more topic with you briefly. The sure. conventional wisdom on drugs. Um, again, sorry to sound self-referential, but be self-referential. Another thing I was asked about on TV, they said, well, uh, you know, you were the drugs are. Here's this prosecution that's going on, this bribery case with this uh, uh, big pharma company and so on uh, about the epidemic of opioid use and um, how responsible are the big pharma companies. You don't have to deal with the specifics of that case, but responsibility for the big pharma companies for this horrible uh, mortality uh, rates. We're looking at, what, 71,000, 72,000 in, in 2017? Yeah, and preliminary data saying it looks like it might be going up for the following year. Yeah. Uh, tell us yeah. what we are hearing and what's true. Sure. Uh, look, I think, as you know, and again, this is a topic I've learned from you, as I've learned everything else, you've been one my greatest teacher, Bill. I want to make sure I thank you for that. But, um, you know, we look at we look at the, the, the world of substance abuse and drug overdose deaths, and it all has to be efforted. It all has to be worked on. I think you've said you throw the kitchen sink at this thing. I'm reminded of that ad by Carol O'Connor back in the day where he said, what do you do to keep your kid off drugs? Anything you can. So we want to do everything we possibly can. Um, but this notion that the DOJ likes to show when they go after the opioid manufacturers, the legal manufacturers of legal drugs for sales fraud and that sort of thing, it's important but it's nowhere close to the real issue. And I don't want people to get a false sense of security because we indict uh, an executive here and there for sales fraud. Um, that's not the main issue. Well over 60% of the opioid problem is illegal drugs. It's illegal fentanyl, it's heroin, it's stuff flowing up through Mexico, it's fakely manufactured from China. And so when we talk about going after you know, people who misuse their prescription drugs, their legal prescription drugs, those deaths, by and large, 
are in combination with some other drug. They are diverted to other people. Illegal use of those legal drugs. The problem still is, the vast majority of the problem still is illegal use, illegal diversion, and illegal drugs. Illegal drugs. Good, good. I'm so glad you. Uh, I'm so glad you. I'm so glad you said that. Very, very well, important. Well, I just don't want us to feel comfortable about right. we're solving the problem when we're going after the smallest part and preening about how good we are because we arrested um, a legal drug manufacturer. Good if he's guilty, but that is the smallest part of the problem. And until we wrestle with the issue of illegal drugs and illegal drug use, we are going to um, have the problem be made worse. Yeah, but I, you know this is sort of the same way, isn't it? That uh, we saw uh, the media and the left get more exercised about cigarettes than about marijuana. I mean, it's corporate. Well, that's right. It's, it's corporations right. and they're marijuana easy targets. Is the last line on TV: you cannot smoke on TV. That's exactly right. We we somehow have figured out a way to make ourselves feel good about uh, you know a drug that can affect your lungs, while we just dispense with all the problems of the drug that affect your brain and your life. It's yes. an amazing point in history we've reached. One other thing I would say, and just get your comment, I, 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 so I, I, I said things along the lines you've just said, Seth, uh, in response to this question about these prosecutions and reminded people that our major problem here is, is the illegal stuff. I heard a cop say the other day, I haven't seen, you know, uh, Oxycontin, Oxycodone on the street in two years. Everybody's buying heroin and fentanyl. But at that point behind us, I got a, I got a note from our friend, Dr. Bob DuPont, who's one of the world's great uh, psychiatrist doctors. He said, just remember when you're saying, okay, it's not Oxycontin, Oxycodone, it's heroin or it's fentanyl. Just remember from the perspective of a doctor uh, looking at a user, it's it's almost always multi-use. It's not one thing. Well, that's right. Every uh, uh, DA I have talked to, because states are now tracking death due to opioid overdoses, uh, when there is that legal drug, whether it's an Oxycontin or an Oxycodone or a Vicodin, when, there's, when those deaths occur, it's, as we said earlier, it's either diverted to people who were never prescribed it, you know, who got it from the cabinet or what have you, or it's in combination with some other drug like a benzodiazepine. In fact, you are beginning to see articles saying, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a benzodiazepine Xanax problem more than it is an opioid problem. I don't want to get into which is worse, but the illegal use and combination of both. Right or multi-drug use with alcohol, yeah. that's what is causing most of the legal prescription overdose. But again, legal prescription overdose was a problem, still is. It was a much bigger problem. I just don't like the overwhelming focus on us thinking yeah. we're doing a good job by talking about that because the problem still is, as when you were drug czar, illegal drugs. Right, and, and so it diverts our attention away from it where really the action does. is and needs to be. Right. Yeah. And where the law enforcement action needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you had a, a really unsafe neighborhood and, you know, the federal, the, the state prosecutor went after a coffee shop owner for tax straw and preened about that in the unsafe neighborhood. Fine if he's guilty, but let's not give the community a, fal a, a false sense of safety because they fixed the problem in that neighborhood or in that community. The streets are still unsafe. Yeah.
Good. Excellent. Seth, thank you very much. Uh, folks will uh, have the pleasure of listening to Seth tonight on the Seth Liebson Show. How do they get it online if they don't live in your area? Very easy. They can download an app on their phone of 960 AM The Patriot or on the Internet. We're available anytime they want, 960 AM or 960thepatriot.com. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Claude, let's, uh, pretty heady stuff there from our guest, Mark Corey and Seth Liebson. Mm-hmm. Let's talk uh, less heady things. Let's talk politics and elections. Okay. One thing, have you noticed there's just not been very much talk about at all is these uh, Senate elections in 2020? Right. Everyone's focused on the, yeah. Now, uh, one thing I did read is that Democrats are having trouble recruiting good people for these Senate runs. That surprises me a lot because they didn't have any problem recruiting some very good people by their lights <laughs> right. for 2018, right? Yeah, and they, right. you know, and they took back the house. I wonder why, you know, there's a similar problem in the Senate. But I think most people are saying at this point they expect the Senate to remain in Republican hands. Okay. So the, of course that raises the question of the presidency. I think I said on this very podcast that I think Bernie will be the nominee. You did? I did. Mm-hmm. Stuck with it. All right, I'm sticking with it. Okay. I know that Biden is sky high, but I just think the air is going to go out of him. Who was it that said, I think it was one of our power line buddies, said uh, in the peak of his, in, the, in his prime, he was mediocre, <laughs> and he's way past his prime. <laughs> No, if you caught the Adam Sandler bit on Saturday Night Live, I did not. Uh, but it, uh, it was something like, "Oh, a bunch of candidates, you know, he plays the guitar, and there are plenty. So why do we end up with two white guys who are 17? <laughs> <laughs> it was something like that. That's yeah. A, but but I mean, I know that's about Sanders as well as Biden, who'll be even older. But I I just think Biden. You know, one of the things I noticed about him is when he can't elucidate a point. Uh, and can't, you know, go into something a, a subtle or explain his answer. He just doubles down. He just gets louder and flashes his grin. He's got a great grin with his teeth, uh, and he gets emphatic. But I also just don't like the, the extremes he goes to. It's it's the, the Republican Party wants to put you back in chains. Oh, they're going to do Jim Crow. Right. Um you know, I, I just I just don't like him like that. I, I know the guy. That's not who he is. But now I think his problem is, as I've said before, he's going to try to do this millennial impersonation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's going to work. Sanders is coherent. He's got a point of view. He was on Fox. He did a good job. Uh, he's going to get 15 percent in each state. So he's going to have delegates, a lot of delegates at the convention. They're not going to let him steal it away from Bernie this time. Mm-hmm. And Bernie is also the fountain of ideas. He's the he's the he's the guy, Father Abraham, to whom they're all going to find out what to think and believe. Yeah, I mean, when you look at people like AOC, I mean, he's the reason why they have this voice and momentum. I mean, like you said, he's the the, the interesting thing, though. Um, I get it about Bernie's momentum. I still think Joe Biden's going to win the nominee. I don't think that there's one person who benefited the most from association to Obama, who's still widely popular among Democrats, especially millennials, than Joe Biden. I think there's a bunch of people who, when they see him, they see Obama. Well, they see who they they, they see a link to Obama. And um, and I think that he'll benefit from that. I think that's what he benefits from. There's that. And there's the argument. And I've heard this argument. I asked this on the last edition of Wise Guys, that if you look at the Democrat Party, it's not really uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's really 
older white people, believe it or not. Uh, that's the heart of the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. It's center left, not left. Right. Uh, and that Joe Biden is this reassuring figure. Mm-hmm. Yes, but all the energy does seem to be coming all from the left. left. All and all of the arguments seem to be pushing all of these candidates to the left. So we'll see. We'll see how we'll see how that works out. You may you may well be right. Uh, and he may be he may be the nominee. Um, but dark horse or anybody who might else make it. I, the only other person I think who could finish in the finals is Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because she's got a lot going for her. She had that great, you know, introduction launch. Uh, and you know, she's got stature. She's very attractive. She's articulate. She's got to stop this week. You should have a conversation about that. (laughs) It's too much of a stall. Right. But I do you agree with me or not? No, I do. I am interested to see, um, number one, when will people stop declaring that they're going to run for president? <laughs> but then two, well, it's got to be an end of that. When will folks start coming out of the race? Because I don't think everybody makes it to all the debate stages. I don't think everyone makes it, obviously, through all the primaries. I'm, oh, I and, think everybody will hang on until not all the debates, but the first debates mm-hmm. in June. Oh, you, Because be everybody that. thinks they'll, you know, lightning will strike. Exactly. Uh, um, and when will folks start pulling out saying, OK, because I'm not sure out of the 22, if there's anybody outside of Bernie and Biden who can who can actually stand on stage with Trump and, and, and shrink in the moment. It just seemed too small for the moment. Well, I mean, Bernie's very smart, mm-hmm. but Buttigieg is very smart. Right. Um, um, but I just don't see the others. I just don't see the others getting anywhere. Kristen Hill, Gillibrand or right. Cory Booker or, you know, the other candidates, yeah, the yeah. governor of Washington and so on. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, maybe there's the Delaney from, mm-hmm. from Maryland. Yes, Salwell. Yes, Salwell. That's that's not going to happen. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think Trump would welcome the debate on socialism versus capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he'd have his hands full with Bernie because Bernie's smart. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd be having an easier time debating Biden. I actually do. But um, but we'll see. Uh, the polls are showing Biden way up there. Uh, let's see. I noticed there are not a lot of campaign appearances by Biden. Right. He's not all over the place, you know. So uh, that tells me maybe limitations of energy, people worried about gaffes and so on. But uh, but we'll see. Um this economy is, of course, extraordinary, and um, it's going to be very hard for Democrats to argue uh, argue against that. So they'll make it a, the personality and so on. Now, one of the wild cards in here, I think, uh, Claude, is impeachment. If they decide to okay. go for impeachment, mm-hmm. which I think they're just like like you know like uh, bees to honey, I just don't mm-hmm. think they're going to be able to avoid it, and that'll hurt them. Right, because they won't impeach him. I mean, they'll they may impeach him, they'll impeach him, but they won't convict him. Right. So. right. Any other thoughts on candidates or elections? Bernie kind of has a way of almost speaking and appealing the same way President Trump does, doesn't he? In a in a way that yeah. it seems like everyone can kind of understand Stirs what he's people saying. up. Oh, absolutely. Resentment, uh, forgotten Americans. Man, if you're mad, really simple. Really simple. He doesn't Straight talk late. over the heads of That's everyone. Right. You know right. what I mean? He doesn't get too far in the. He can get far in the weeds with with, with policy and stuff, but he doesn't. You know, and, and he'll say that I don't want to get too far because But he gives you things to remember. You know, the top ten Americans have more. Wealth and the bottom third of, mm-hmm. of Americans. You, you know? know how much, how many corp, uh, in corporate taxes this company paid last zero, year? Zero, right? All, zero. all, all or what zero. About this yeah. company, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's always the same. Yeah. And people yeah. hear that and they get, they get. You know, no, he's good. Up. He's good. Uh, he would be what seventy nine on taking office. Right. Oh, you know, well, no, I, I won't. I won't argue on that point. All right, that's it. That wraps it up for today. And thanks so much for listening. 